Welcome to your Monday morning at the World Transformed. I hope you're all feeling fantastic. Great weekend behind us. Good couple of days ahead of us. Thank you, thank you very much for coming along to this particular panel, uh, the soundtrack of the movement, Why Music Matters. My name is Dave Randall, I'm a musician and I'm also the author of this book about music and politics. And it was the co oh, thank you, there you go. Um, it's my family down the front. Um, um, it was the co-publisher of this book, The Left Book Club, who suggested that I should put this panel together and I was absolutely delighted that they asked me to do that and even more delighted when these amazing other panellists agreed to take part. Um, so this is how I'm going to run things, if it's alright with you. I'm going to quickly introduce the panel to you. Um, then I'm going to speak for about five minutes just to set the scene for this discussion. And, uh, and then we'll hear from the panellists, I'll probably ask the panellists a few questions and then we'll open it up uh, to a discussion. So, let's introduce the panel. Um, immediately to my left, an absolutely brilliant rising star of the Afro-Cuban and Latin, pan-Latin scene. Um, a, a formidable uh, piano player, musical director, also the band leader of, of, of an excellent band called Wara. Please welcome Eliana Correa. Next to Eliana, a formidable artist, many of you I'm sure will know her from the band The Noisettes. Uh, she's also got a fantastic new project coming along which I hope she'll tell us a little bit about. I was lucky enough to have a bit of a preview, preview of the new EP in Deptford recently and it is stunning new music from Shingi Shoniwa. Then we have a tireless activist, also a music journalist, but here in her capacity as one of the national organisers of Love Music Hate Racism, please welcome Lois Brown. And finally, somebody who the vast majority of you will know well, but in case you don't, a brilliant uh, hip-hop artist, a, a, another tireless activist, most associated recently with the Justice for Grenfell campaign, please welcome Loki. Now, we are here at the World Transformed Festival to equip ourselves with ideas in order to better do what it says on the tin, to transform the world. Now one of the observations I make in the book is that anyone who wants to change the world would be well advised to begin by answering two questions. The first, the first question was most famously posed by the great soul singer Marvin Gaye and the second question most famously posed by the Russian revolutionary Lenin. What's going on and what is to be done? So let's begin. Let's begin with what's going on. Now, I, I'm sure that most people at this conference would agree that we are living through a period of political polarisation, the like of which I don't think I've ever seen before in my lifetime. Millions of people all around the world are starting to question and indeed to reject the old so-called centre ground. 
in politics. I say so-called centre-ground because, of course, when the mainstream talk about the centre, they're not talking about some sort of sensible middle point, are they? What they're talking about is this consensus that has existed for a long time around neoliberal economics and all of the policies associated with that. Deregulate the markets, privatise everything, cut public spending, and so on. People are starting to question and to reject that because they are fed up with what it has delivered or failed to deliver for them. And they are looking for alternative ideas. Now, the rise of Jeremy Corbyn and the politics that he represents here in this country, and let's not let opponents of Jeremy in the Parliamentary Labour Party forget that it was him, the most left-wing the left leader that the Labour Party has had, that achieved the biggest swing back to Labour at the last election since the Second World War. But the rise of Corbyn and the politics that he represents in this country is, of course, not the only example. Many of you will remember the enthusiasm that greeted the Bernie Sanders campaign before the last US presidential elections. Thousands of predominantly young people very much excited by the ticket on which he ran, social and economic justice. Uh, and I think it's fair to speculate that if the Democratic Party had have allowed him to run against Trump, he may well have done rather better than Hillary Clinton did. Um, there's also a, a self-described socialist in France who did better than the pundits were predicting. I, I know that he was speaking earlier at this conference, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. There's Podemos in Spain, there's Syriza when they were first elected in Greece. Now all of these examples suggest that there is a huge potential audience for left-wing progressive ideas. But where the left aren't making gains, or sometimes in parallel with those gains, the populist right and indeed the far right are making gains. And that is very worrying. So, what is to be done? Well, there are of course many things that can and must be done to make sure that the positive side, the progressive side of this period of polarisation wins out. To ensure that we deliver a better world to future generations. I think in a, in a single sentence, it's incumbent on all of us, wherever we live, and whatever we do for a living, to get stuck in to the fight for a better world. Now, one of the things I argue in this book, and the reason why we're having this panel discuss discussion this morning, is because one of the battlegrounds in that fight for a better world is culture. Because I think that the images that we see every day and the stories that surround us, and yes, the music that we experience has a significant impact on the way that we feel, feel about ourselves, each other, and the world that we share. We can have um, music that distracts us from the things that matter. We can have music that persuades us to buy things we don't need. Music that helps to persuade us to internalise ideas that are not in our best interest. We can have music that marches us off to fight unnecessary and unjust wars. And in fact, establishment figures, members of the ruling class and so on, have harnessed the political power of culture throughout history and across cultures. And I give examples of that in the book. But we can also 
use music to bring a diverse range of people together to give people some hope and some confidence, an expanded sense of what's possible. We can use music to reach new audiences with progressive ideas. Now, one of the most important music-led political campaigns uh, in this country, in living memory, was a campaign called Rock Against Racism, which I think we're going to hear a little bit, I hope we're going to hear a little bit more about from Lois Brown. But I just want to end this introductory talk with a quote from a guy called David Widgery, who was one of the, uh, one of the founders of Rock Against Racism. He said this, he said, what our experience had, sorry, our experience had taught us a golden political rule. How people find their pleasure, entertainment and celebration is also how they find their sexual identity, their political courage and their strength to change. Now I believe that that is still the case and that's why I'm very, very happy that The World Transformed is hosting this particular panel discussion. So without further ado, let me hand over to Lois um, and I'm hoping that Lois will be able to tell us a little bit more. Grab a mic from the table if you don't want to come and speak from here, it's entirely up to you. I'm hoping that Lois will tell us a bit more about Rock Against Racism, but also its contemporary equivalent, Love Music Hate Racism. Thank you. racism got started up in the 1970s. Um, it actually came from a reaction to um, Eric Clapton um, having a racist outburst at one of his shows where he backed Enoch Pyle. And it was like one of the other co-founders, um, so Red Saunders and Roger Huddle, and they decided to write a letter into the enemy in disgust in response to this um, support. So let me get final letter and give you a read. Uh, so this is a book called Rock Against Racism, the references of Rock Against Racism, and basically it's got loads of different diary entries of people that were involved in the movement, and I definitely recommend it. It's got some typos, I'm not going to lie, but I definitely recommend it, it's a good read. Okay, so this is the letter uh, they wrote in to the enemy, when you still have to pay for it, you know? <laughs> so. Okay. What's going on, Eric? You've got a touch of brain damage, so you're going to stand up for us and think you, we are being colonized by black people. Come, come, you've been taking too much of that Daily Express stuff, you know, you can't handle it. Own up, half your music is black. You're rock music's biggest colonialist. You're a good musician, but where would you be without the blues and the R&B? You've got to fight the racist poison, otherwise you degenerate into the sewer of the rats and all the money men who've ripped off rock culture with their checkbooks and plastic crap. Rock was and still can still can still be a real progressive culture, not a package mail order stick on nightmare of mediocre garbage. We want to organise a, a rank and file movement against the racist poison in rock music. We urge support against all those interested. Please write to work against racism. Box M6, Cotton Gardens, London, E2, 8DN. P.S. Who shot the sheriff, Eric? It sure as hell wasn't you. And it was signed by like, the team behind it. So that's Peter Bruno, Dave Courts, Angela Follett, uh, Roger Huddle, Red Saunders, Mike Standard, Joe Rayford, 
and that was like written in September 1976. Yeah, so you can kind of see where that's expanded from. Um, and then as time went on, more groups across the, the country started setting up gigs. Um, one of the, the big ones was uh, the, the Victoria Park Carnival that was set up in 1978. And that was um, in collaboration with Antonazi League at the time, ANL. And that, that march, that march started, so basically it started from all the way from Trafalgar Square, so that people actually marched from Trafalgar Square all the way to Victoria Park, through East London at the time, which was a massive stronghold um, for the National Front. So it was a big, like, fingers up to those people. Um, and at the show, they had like a, a massive lineup of bands, such as X-Ray The Clash, as were still Pulse. And um, what was great about the event as well, especially because they thought that people, the young people, wouldn't want to march all the way from Trafalgar Square. But when they did, it was like people actually, it's not just about the music, it's actually about the political statement they're making. Um, and over the years, so Rock Against Racism has now become Love Music and Hate Racism, who I work for. Uh, Love Music and Hate Racism was one of the phrases they took from the shows um, when they were doing the gigs and all the different festivals. Um, and like we relaunched um, in 2016 due to the rise in the hate crimes, Islamophobia, and I guess the general kind of rise of um, all these right wing groups across Europe, such as AFD in um, Germany, Golden Dawn in Greece, and you know, the latter. Um, so we've now, whereas before Rock Against Racism was quite anti establishment in terms of linking with the music industry. Um, we are now making kind of like forays into that and have um, we relaunch with artists from like Warner's like roster such as uh, Goldplay, Coldplay, um, Ed Sheeran, we've got support from Stormzy, Leanna Havas um, and then more recently we've had people such as Slaves and like um, Marika Hackman backing us. Um, Um, pardon? Huh? What was that? Oh yeah, Noisex, Noisex, oh yeah, because there, there, there was so many events, come on. So 2009, that's how I actually got into Noisex, mm -hmm. it's actually 2009, another Victoria Park event, but I'm sorry, yeah, but. <laughs> mm. um, so, yeah, we've just been trying to build into that industry, because we think as well, it's really important if the industry take it seriously, or like, um, take it as a standpoint that it means that we can actually roll it out and then hopefully it becomes like a necessity for us to be involved in those sort of campaigns. And again, like making connections with the Association of Independent Music Labels, so all the labels such as Excel, um, Hospitality, um, just trying to branch out into those spaces. Um, today, like our biggest achievements, I would say, in the, in, in the last couple of years has been, so we organised the Float the Hall Carnival and we were like, uh, our purpose was, our slogan was that party with purpose. So this is my carnival t-shirt from this year. Let me show you guys. So we all like customised them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is our new logo, so that's why I wanted to wear it as well. So that's our new logo. I put yeah, pom-poms in and put some cut some beading. Um, and like in the first one, we came fourth. And this year, this, the theme was Sunbeam, and it was actually uh, to commend Claudia Jones, who's one of the like, activists who actually started Notting Hill Carnival. Because Notting Hill Carnival is under threat as well, and they want to privatise it and turn it into like the Chelsea and Kensington 
borough show, get people to pay £10 to go into Hyde Park, which we're like, no, because especially given the instance of the Windrush Generation crisis, carnival issues are even more important for us to uh, make sure our presence was felt. Um, and yeah, it was a great celebration. And again, like also paying respects to Grenfell's um, in addition to that. And we also then, um, I mean, also on like um, the 14th of July, where we had um, Donald Trump come through, we did a revolution day, and so collaboration with Soho Radio, um, and we got to do a street party in Soho, which is nuts, because basically it shut down, I had a 40-foot truck with a massive sound system, and yeah, it caused a bit of havoc in, in Soho, and the police had to shut it down eventually, and one of the lines from the police officers was like, how can you be encouraging people to be dancing in the streets of London, guys? <laughs> On a Friday night in Soho. So yeah, it was amazing. And, and you know, and, like just from those events, clearly, music, you know, should never be un uh, like, underestimate the power of just bringing people together. Even yesterday, um, night we actually went to watch a, a group from Brazil called Afro Sida. Right? Like you know, everyone's it just won't. Everyone out, everyone's together, there's jamming, it's having the best time. And I just think we should just remember, yeah, that, that the strength and it's unified. We shouldn't, you know, let ourselves be conned or fooled by the governments and people who are trying to impose these like racist and fascist, fascist agendas on our thought processes. Oh, that's it. Thank you. Uh, brilliant. Thanks for that, Lois. Let's just have um, just let's just check the pronunciation of that brilliant band that we saw. Some of us saw last night. Afro Sudaji. One to look out for. Look, staying on this theme. Staying on this theme of either. Um, creating music, a campaign creating music events or bringing music into campaigns. So this relationship between music and campaigns and indeed mention of the Notting Hill Carnival, it seems uh, fitting to, to, to speak next with, or to hear next from Loki um, because of course he's been centrally involved uh, both in the Justice for Grenfell campaign itself but also spreading the message about that campaign. I mean. Uh, I saw him performing at Boomtown this year, Shambhala this year, right, festivals right across the summer bringing that political message to audiences. Loki? Well, I think, you know, um, uh, in the Theatre of, of the Oppressed by Augusto Barr, he talks about the way in which the ruling class are the only people that really have the means uh, to disseminate their messages and their ideology and art, the dominant art within a society, is generally um, uh, kind of um, an expression of the dominant class interest. We see that in, in our lifetime. But what I think you've seen in the Grenfell campaign and also preceding um, the fire at Grenfell is uh, a war of position in the Gramsci sense of talking about it, whereby artists Prior to Grenfell, what preceded Grenfell in the area is very significant and very important, especially for everyone in this room. You had a situation where um, Kensington has been Tory 
for living memory. You know, I, I don't actually know of a case where it was not Tory. What you had was a situation where a Kyla, AJ Tracy, and myself, as all local residents, came out and explicitly called on people to vote for um, uh, Emmerdent Code. Now, in that situation, you're talking about mobilizing people from the north of Kensington, where the life expectancy is 22 years less than the south of Kensington. And so we had people who literally had never voted before, voting for the first time, and pushing in uh, an MP who's uh, anti-imperialist, who's uh, anti-neoliberal generally. Um, and so this was really um, significant. What you saw following the Grenfell fire was a way in which musicians were able to be mobilized and um, try and uh, demystify this situation. What we find in the context of uh, the neoliberal era whereby the, uh, the invisible hand of the market is inserted into the iron glove of the state and something like Grenfell, where you see US construction company Arconic responsible for the cladding, a French construction company like Celotex responsible for the um, insulation, that that relationship between government and corporate power is so ambiguous and so unclear that these relationships need to be clarified and made uh, absolutely abundantly um, open to uh, uh, real critical examination and so what you had in that situation was the Ghost of Grenfell song that we made um, and it was really a chance for us to confront the audience with the faces of the people who passed um, but also uh, you had the situation where Stormzy who is the biggest uh, music artist in this country at this stage, at the Brit Awards, on the biggest platform. I mean, he's probably not bigger than Adele, but Adele was also a supporter um, of the uh, Justice for Grenfell and Grenfell United campaign. But Stormzy came out on stage and said directly, where's the money for Grenfell? I don't think it's any coincidence that within a few weeks at most following the Brit Awards, um, Theresa May comes out and says, we're, we're putting aside 400 million pounds to remove this poisonous, dangerous cladding and insulation from other buildings that are part of council housing in this country. However, we also know in typical shape-shifting neoliberal fashion that 400 million pounds came from the budget for affordable housing. But the point is, but the point is, is that what was the relationship between the music and the material lived realities? This is where we have seen these um, roles being played and I think it's massively important that we emphasize them, that we, um, you know, because musicians entering into that field as something that we have already established is an extension of ruling class interest, for them to go against the grain in that sense. So for you to be a hip hop artist that is encouraging young people to read, that may not seem at face value massively subversive. But in a context where 300 million pounds has been cut from the youth services, where 343 libraries have been shut, that is actually a deeply revolutionary and subversive thing to do. So for Stormzy to come out with his, his book deal that it has with Penguin, you know, this is going to be really interesting. What this is going to lead to, I think, will be interesting. So I think these things should definitely be commended, they should be encouraged. 
I think often, um, unfortunately, when looking at the, the extreme center, as uh, Dave pointed out before, you know, these are red lines of inverted totalitarianism. The Sheldon Wallen spoke about it. So within our episodic representation, we have certain red lines that are never votable against. That is what has pushed and propelled Jeremy Corbyn into the situation we are now in now, because all of us in this room perceive we now have the chance to vote on issues that whether it was Miliband, or whether it was Blair, or whether it's Vince Cable, or whether it's Nick Clegg, we've never had the opportunity to vote on before. That's the reason we're all here, essentially. These elements and these red lines of inverted totalitarianism now seem to us to be open to uh, really pushing through some interesting stuff. So I think uh, musicians in that situation that are kind of playing those roles do need to be supported. Um, also, I think it's really important when us taking into account that 17th of November we have the mobilization against, uh, you know, what I would say if we look at coming into Brexit, we have a situation where Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson are looking for an alliance, a Bananite alliance with the Tommy Robinson trend. I think we should be clear about it, we should be cognizant of it. When Jacob Rees-Mogg was attacked at, uh, well not attacked, sorry, that's not the right way to describe it. When he was, um, say, protested against at Bristol University, Paul Golding of Britain First, before he was in prison, went online and he said, if you come to Jacob Rees-Mogg's uh, lectures and you give him trouble, we're going to find out where you live and we're going to come to your house. Okay, this is Paul Golding, the leader of Britain First, an organisation with millions of followers on Facebook who have been linked to the murder of an MP in this country, right? Saying explicitly that he is in alliance with Jacob Rees-Mogg. What they want to push through is an ultra neoliberal, deregulated um, US client state, potentially TPP type of Brexit. That's what they want to do. And that's what they're doing. They're using the Islamophobia, which has been a, 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 an essential and critical component of the war on terror, which has gone on uh, longer than World War I and World War II put together, led to the death of habeas corpus for some Muslim people in this country. They are trying to ride on the back of that wave, wave, um, that wave to push through further deregulation. You know, and we have to say absolutely, explicitly clear that what happened in Grenfell is a tombstone to the neoliberal consensus. It's absolutely discredited and it's absolutely a case of life or death. And that's why we need to push this through. And we need to realize that in this situation, musicians do have the potential to play that role of the organic intellectual. Yes, there is a lot of things pushing them in other directions. You know, and even censorship by omission, if you start putting into your music a systemic critique of capitalism, do you really think you're going to enjoy the patronage of the BBC? I'll give you a perfect and interesting example. In 2009, I won something called the BBC Performing Arts Fund and was given £10,000 by the BBC. Now, off the back of that, I made with that money a song called Terrorist, um, which is essentially questioning this and juxtaposing the violence of BAE systems with the unorganized violence of um, those we understand to be terrorists in this present time. Off the back of that, the BBC, part of this 
part of this uh, winning of this fund was that the BBC would support me in what I was doing. When it came to 2010, I was invited onto Tim Westwood's show on September the 11th. This is prior to his trip to Afghanistan um, and performance at Camp Bastion, for which I boycotted him. I was rung at the last minute on September the 11th and told, oh, actually, there's a real problem. You can't come on today. But this is very strange. It's, it's unlike the BBC to be like this. I then contacted somebody that I knew inside the organisation. They said that they were scared that you were going to come on on September the 11th and say something problematic. This is how, this is how these kind of um, attritional struggles are waged. So what that then leads to is somebody thinking, well, I don't want... To, to fall victim to kind of censorship by omission, so you begin to self-censor. What you other, what you also have is the other issue of this kind of governmentality, where somebody sees an example of what is successful. Okay, an example of what is successful is somebody that is pumping out the um, accepted norms and common sensical norms of a neoliberal society, individualism, you can make it rags to riches, whatever obstacles are placed in front of you. It invisibilizes um, the, 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 uh, the social stratification of society, essentially. If, if you're in that situation, what it can lead to is you self-censor. And, and we need to encourage our musicians to be radical, and we need to um, consolidate their bonds to the communities which most of them come from. Can I just clarify one point straight away? You referred to November the 17th, that's a national demonstration against racism and fascism in London, have we got the details? On, but, but put that date in your diaries, the 17th of November, national demonstration called by United Against Fascism and the Trade Unions. Yeah, and London's hate racism. Okay, um, over to Eleni Correa, who's gonna tell us about her experiences in the music industry. Can we get that mic working as well, Anthony? One, two. Okay, thank you. So, um, a little bit about my background. I, um, I work mostly in the Latin scene in London for the last 10 years. I, uh, I was born in Luxembourg to Cuban and Argentinian parents. Moved to Cuba as a teenager, so I've seen both ends of the spectrum. And um, I've been back and forth between London and Havana for the last 10 years. Uh, as Dave said earlier, I have a band called Wara. We, uh, as far as I know, are the only band in the UK that's um, female-led, Latin, and unashamedly political. Um, <laughs> so, um, they've they've uh, got in touch with me because recently I um, got offered a gig in Israel, and uh, I said no. And then I posted on Facebook a picture of myself holding a sign that said, I won't play in Israel and talking about um, the, the cultural boycott that's in place, that's being organized, and how important this is, um, how important it is that people become aware that this is a problem, that there is an apartheid in Israel and Palestine, and that Palestinians are being bombed and attacked. Um, and, uh, well, the person who organized the festival that I turned down eventually put two and two together and figured out that it was her festival I was talking about. So what this person did was um, repost my, my picture with all of the little speech I wrote down 
on every single Latin and salsa dancers page on Facebook in Israel. Um, eventually, I end up getting you know violent threats in my inbox. Um, it, the thing gets shared all over the place. It all goes crazy. Um, but what I found the most shocking of all of it was that a lot of people, not necessarily Zionist sympathizers, um, commented and said, you know, why don't you stick to your music and stay away from politics? Um, <laughs> so um, these were people who followed me on Facebook just for the music, uh, who were not necessarily of any political affiliations. Um, right, so here's the thing. My main, my main scene that I work in, that I live in, in London, is the Latin scene, and it's a very harsh place. Um, because Latinos, we arrived quite late. Uh, we arrived in the 90s mostly, from the 90s onwards. And, uh, you know, in this neo-colonialist sort of immigrant pecking order that's in place, we are one of the last, so we are one of the lowest. Uh, the amount of poverty and people living below the London living wage in London for the Latin community is overwhelming. Uh, people are very marginalized, also the language barrier is there, and there's not any systems put in place to help people integrate a little bit more. There is over a million Latin Americans living in the UK, and we only became recognized as a community a couple of years ago. This is a major problem because it means that we don't have access to resources that will help people have access to move, moving up sort of the pyramid, this capitalist pyramid that we unfortunately live in. So um, the Latin scene as a result pays very badly because the Latinos don't, they can't afford nights out with, you know, good live music because it costs money, of course. But then, you know, the rest of the scene, apart from a few exceptions, one of which is Movimientos run by Callum Simpson, who's sitting over there, um, he is doing a lot for the scene, but most of the non-Latin-centric scene is, is based around this um, orientalist, whitewashed, sort of Buena Vista social club style, um, fake appropriation of our culture, where people get this stereotype they're willing to pay for, where, you know, it's, girls with flowers in their hair and short skirts, um, playing very exotic music and playing the maracas, and you know, old guys with guayabera shirts, playing songs that they find unintimidating and that they find you know, comfortable. Um, they're, they're, that's it, this is what there is, this is what we're dealing with. And so obviously it, it makes it quite difficult for us to try and open up and, and express ourselves within the Latin scene. Um, uh -huh. so, the thing is, immigrants um, in the UK generally are taught that they need to stay silent and not talk about politics because Latin Americans mostly do not get to have a EU passport. So when you get here, they tell you, oh, be careful what you say. There's all of this integration goes through a very, um, very destructive kind of psychological ways. Um, so I have a Spanish passport. And I was the one that said, well, I will write the songs in Wara. I will be the one that is the face of this so that you guys that don't have EU passports don't get into trouble. Now with Brexit happening, my Venezuelan and Cuban friends are laughing at my face and saying, well, <laughs> what are you going to do now? But you know what? We keep going. Screw them. Anyway. Um, so this is what I wanted to let you guys know today is mainly that you know, we, we are taught to be quiet as immigrants, we are taught to be quiet as women as well, because a woman who thinks and speaks up is not attractive. Um, but at the end of the day, 
we have to keep going. Um, like like Loki was just saying, I mean, you had a lot of trouble with the BBC because you're being political. This this is, uh, for example, I mean, Fadakuti, no one encouraged him to be talking against the corruption going on in Nigeria in the 70s and 80s. I mean, the police was raiding the shrine regularly. No one encouraged Billie Holiday to write strange fruit about the lynchings. You will not be encouraged in music to become political. This is something that's frowned upon publicly, that's heavily discouraged, but we have to keep going. There's a million ways in which we as musicians, we as, as uh, people who perform publicly in one way or another, can continue to plant the seeds of change. You don't have to be winning Grammys every year. You don't have to fill out stadiums. Change begins with each one of us. Music is a very, very powerful tool for change throughout history. Without music, the South African apartheid struggle would have taken a lot longer. This was a, a driving force behind most revolutions. Revolutions have a soundtrack, invariably. Music is insanely important in social change. So, it doesn't matter whether you have, you know, a hundred followers on Instagram or a hundred million. It doesn't matter. End of the day, I put up this post about Israel. I'm not, I don't have a million followers on Instagram, but still this generates the idea that it's okay. I'm still here, nothing happened to me. Eventually someone else will post something else. And this is how we're just going to create a wave of slow but steady change. Grassroots is what needs to drive this. It's not going to come from above. political talk for the younger generations. Teach the younger ones, especially marginalized people, especially women, especially immigrants, especially ethnic minorities. We need to encourage the younger generations to not be ashamed of being political, to be willing to debate. One day they will get squashed in a debate because that's how you learn. But this we need to encourage. We need to make sure that they know to be free. We need to remember that in society, different ones of us are given this entitlement to different levels of freedom of speech. And we are the ones that have to change this. So we need to teach our little girls to speak freely, to play freely, to make music freely, to learn to empower themselves. Thank you. Lots of things that lots of us want to pick up and, and talk about, but there's one in particular um, this question of, of expectations when you're an artist. Um, you know, this, this, this idea that you're just an entertainer and so stay in your box. I do think that that's a real problem that you see occurring quite a lot. And I know, Shingi, we were talking in the bar last night about how that can even apply within genres of music. You know, you, there's a, a sort of a sense of of, um, of some musicians being allowed to perform and become successful in certain types of music, but not others. Um, tell us a bit more about your experiences, Shingi. Um, that was really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, um, I kind of feel like um, I'm really lucky and I'm really grateful to be able to uh, express myself and, you know, kind of try and uplift the universe for a living. 
I've always wanted to uh, do, you know, to, to tell stories, to do music, to perform, because I realised from um, when I was uh, a little girl and I lost a lot of family from a, a young age. So started with my dad when I was 10 and then by the time I was 14, I'd lost about eight really close family members, mums, sisters, and all of my grandparents. So what we used to do, uh, me and my siblings, was to come up with all these little random performances and write these little bits of musical theatre and, you know, whatever the popular films were at the time, we'd do kind of like our own sort of South London version with like, you know, artists that we liked, um, you know, replacing some of the main big sort of films, whatever they were in the 90s or whatever. But um, yeah, I really feel like it's the job of, of art and artists to uplift and to unify. And, and I've had an amazing uh, time um, getting to perform and create, you know, three amazing, uniquely different albums that I'm proud of with the Noisettes. And, you know, I've, my, my, my musical arsenal is proper strong. I have a proper music addict, so I don't discriminate. Um, I love it all, you know, jazz, blues, funk, soul, reggae, dub, all the different, you know, ancillaries that come off that as well. So um, it, it has been sometimes frustrating when I've had people that are supposed to be very informed, smart, you know, journalists and sort of institutions trying to sort of re, you know, try, try to sort of like enclose me in a box and get me to sort of stay in my lane. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't it, it it wasn't easy. I think for people to sort of see this this band that was fronted by a dark skinned brown girl, with natural hair, slinging a bass, stamping on like effects pedals, um, but then you know delivering like very very passionate sort of sweet soulful almost musical theatre inspired you know uh, vocals. Um, so. I don't know if I can really answer that question, but there is definitely, I definitely feel like I faced, oh, and yeah, speaking up was probably hard to do at the time, but yeah, I just faced really interesting questions like, oh, you know, uh, there was a journalist that asked me once, so what does it feel to be playing like white man's music? I was like, in my head, I just laughed and just sort of did this. You kind of give this face and sort of, you're almost um, pretending to be ignorant, but inside you're sort of thinking, well, and I thought, well, who decided that the music that's very original, that's actually uncategorizable, that I'm making, it belongs to any particular race? And um, and I said to this to this guy, um, and most of my interviews, viewers, you know, in the, it sort of like seven to ten years ago would have been, you know, your, your typical enemy mojo journalist. And I'm thinking, you guys have like lived through periods of music which I would, I would, what I would give to be alive in the 60s and see Jimi Hendrix and, you know, um, Led Zeppelin and all these people and the, 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 the love movement and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, God, here we are, like, in the 21st century, um, deciding who gets to play what type of music. And I said to him, um, it's funny you should say that because um, one of my biggest inspirations is actually Sister Rosetta Tharp. And she's this incredible 
gospel, um, rock and roll, blues, jazz, guitar player and singer, who was really um, uh, active in the 50s, 60s and 70s, and used to come to the UK and, you know, do like guitar kind of jam sessions, straight workshops for people like John Mayall. And um, I remember when I met Paul McCartney, he told me that she was a massive inspiration on him. So it did, sorry, yes. She's an African-American um, uh, incredible artist. One of the first artists who ever had like a white Fender Stratocaster, like Stratocaster just made and customized for her like years before all the sort of kind of white rock gods were doing it like in the 90s and 2000s. She was doing that in the late 50s, hanging out with Les Paul, people like that. Do you know what I mean? And so I just, I, I did feel a bit like, oh, maybe, maybe there's just some, some things missing um, from the cultural debate and the, 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 the spectrum of music and that journey of music, the way it's been documented by certain journalists and, and maybe almost kind of like, you know, uh, kind of re-owned re or, I don't want to go as far as to say colonised, but I feel like certain institutions and certain figureheads have been allowed to be that dominant voice of the journey of music. And suddenly I was just like this like, you know, girl in a band who's feeling like I had to sort of dispel a lot of this stuff. But luckily, because my parents brought me up with a really diverse record collection, you know, everything in there from like folk, um, you know, my mum was like into like Uriah Heap, I was into prog, camel, brain ticket, you know, just Ronnie Sites, all of it. So I'm just there thinking, as a musician, it's not my job to put up boundaries. My job as an artist is to bulldoze all of that nonsense down, if anything, because that's not the job of music, to actually create boundaries and to segregate, you know, thought processes or generational continental drifts. You know, that's not our job. So when you get like, you know, the, the, the leading journalists or institutions of the day saying, oh, we can't fund that because, you know, it's, um, you can't be seen to be playing that genre. It, it just feels like we have to make sure that we're not going backwards. And so many amazing artists have achieved so much that um, I'd just like us to carry on going forward and carrying on being in these spaces that everyone has access to where the music is like on this spectrum and it is evolving, you know, and it's not kind of, it, it is very sort of, genre schmonger. So, um, yeah, I don't want to over-speak on that because maybe there's stuff that you might want to ask me later. I don't want to give everything away. <laughs> yeah, so, that's how I feel about it. Hello? Could you, could you keep the mics? Mics on, yeah. Thank you. Thank Maybe you. keep the mics on because we're going to open up to, not a discussion just yet, but I'm going to ask the panellists a couple more questions. So, um, so just picking up on this, uh, this, this point that you've alluded to, you refer to a certain type of journalist and so on, and I think, I think really, you know, let, let, let's be clear, we're, we're referring, are we not, to the fact that not only journalists, but so many of the sort of the gatekeepers in the music industry um, are... Posh white men? Uh, Disproportionately. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the, the people running a lot of the institutions which are supposed to be the
funded a crown of cultures and record companies, publishing companies, um, rights agencies, and all that kind of thing. We're not taking questions just yet, but, but we... Um, I'm afraid you should have rearranged your, your, uh, your morning's activities. We're not taking questions just yet. I'm going to stick with, with, with this. Um, so it seems to me, let me just sort of, if, if I may, try to draw together some of the conversations we've been having so far. We've been talking about bringing music to campaigns, if you will, bringing the party to politics. Then we've talked about bringing politics to the party, you know, taking... Um, taking politics into pre-existing music events. Now we're talking about the music industry itself and the, and the need for the music industry to be democratised fundamentally, for it to no longer be the case that, um, that a disproportionate number of people like that hold those powerful positions. Now, there's probably many people in this room who feel that that, will only, that process will only be complete when we change the whole of society. But I think we can take steps in the right direction. I mean, one of the things I argue for in the book is quota systems for stages at least. In the big festivals there should be uh, an equal number at least representation of, of female artists. Now, any thoughts about that, panellists? Um, I mean, I know of a, one, one of the, a, a new motive from basically PRS which is called Key Change and it's, that's been started up a lot, I think, as of this year and basically their motivation is to get by 2020 sure festival lineups have at least 50% female artists on on their, on their lineup. I mean, a lot of festivals over the summer, even, okay, so for instance, Wireless Festival, basically, their, their lineup was predominantly female artists. They actually had to get a stage for female artists. Um, and again, it's very, it's, it's very normal to go to see a festival lineup and to see um, the, bands or DJs, especially in the electronic scene that are mainly led by men. I mean, you've got sprinklings of female DJs such as Peggy Goo coming through, Shanti Celeste, and um, you've got like Disco Women, which is like a massive uh, uh, collective of female, of female identifying and non-binary female of DJs um, from New York and they're based around in London as well, coming through, but um, it's, it's important that that actually happens and you know, makes makes an impact. Because there are female performers. Oh yeah, Black Madonna and people like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, thanks, mate. I'll, I'll be careful not to knock it in between questions. Um, I mean, it seems to me that there's also a role that, you know, that, that, that we can all play. This isn't just a sort of an exclusive conversation for people in some way involved in the industry. Like, if you're a music fan and, for example, on, on, the, on the, the landing page of your favourite website or indeed the front page of Q, if there hasn't been a female artist or a person of colour on the front page for, you know, four months running, why not complain? Why not have, you know, why not have that discussion with these media outlets? Why not, let's put the pressure on media outlets. Any thoughts? So, um, you know, I think it's really important that we also look uh, a step back and look at music education. Um, for example, I have a friend of mine, she's, uh, she's, uh, she's 20 years old now, and she's studying jazz at Trinity, one of the top jazz schools in, in the UK. And she's the only person of colour in her class, and the only woman. So this is something that, yeah, we need to think about how this ends up happening. Jazz. Jazz. Studying jazz, exactly. 
Yeah, right. So, at Trinity, so this is really one of the top two or three schools in, in the whole country. And this is not just the case at Trinity. This is, this is what happens. It's a vast majority of white male people going into music education to become music professionals. How do we end up like this? Why are we not encouraging people of color, um, females, to, to uh, immigrants as well? There's not a single foreign, foreign born, foreign raised person on her course, on her year. There's no one, not a single one. Um, how do we end up like this? Why are people who are outside of you know, white, white, straight, male type of normative, uh, why are they not more encouraged to make music and to take part in, in, uh, in what music making involves? I think that's... that's I, I agree with what you're saying, and I think that sometimes leads to some of these, you know, probably really innocent comments like the one that I faced from the journalist, because he probably was just really surprised to see that me being, you know, I don't think he meant to other me in saying that, and I don't think he meant to make me feel bad or like I didn't deserve to be playing this certain music, but if the media and the institutions are not telling that story historically of where rock and roll, punk, dance, um, you know, coming from Africa, there's a really kind of easy to follow, maybe not to the layman, but there's quite an easy to follow trajectory if you come from, you know, from, from, from Africa, not just via, you know, the, the, the enslaved um, people that went to the African America, that went to the Americas and Latin America and created incredible forms of music, which some of those have led us to rock and roll, to reggae, to punk. So I think it's the job of lots of people and um, we obviously need to be a lot more curious as people about the things that we love as well, because um, you can never, you know, you can never be, you can never know, not, not know enough. Yeah, and I suppose it also um, underlines the fact that it, we need to engage in a project to create our own media, our independent media. You know, we shouldn't have to always go through these dubious gatekeepers. I mean, I've, I've written a number of articles for Counterfire website, which is a dedicated left-wing website about music and politics. I think the more that we can grow uh, websites and, and, and newspapers and other ways of uh, talking about culture without going through uh, those gatekeepers and those editors, that's got to be a healthy thing. Now, I was coming to the question, of course, of music in our community, because that's very important. Um, music education, I mean, that's fascinating and very depressing what you just said. Just to make us even more depressed, of course, music education is facing massive cuts at the grassroots when it comes to music services and so on. So that's something I think we need to fight against, something that we need to uh, factor into our political programmes and so on. And indeed, the defence of venues, of spaces where unsigned bands can cut their teeth, and indeed where all sorts of other things can go on. Political meetings, yoga classes, public spaces seem to me to be massively under attack. That's a big problem for lots of us. Yeah. Any thoughts? One, two, one, two. Um, one thing I would say which is quite interesting is sometimes we can um, equate visibility with existence. So for example, if you look at uh, the people that are detained in Yarl's Wood and the way in which people are detained there indefinitely by the British government, vast majority of them are women, they have launched 
really significant campaigns, hunger strikes, etc. in recent period, but what has also enriched their spirit of uh, resistance has been the music that they've been creating at Yarlswood. And I think just because we haven't had a BBC documentary made about it, we can sometimes lead ourselves to believe, well, that's not actually happening. It is happening in spite of the conditions that people are in. People create music to enrich their vocabulary of, of dissent and also to, um, to push them on further. One point I wanted to make, Dave, also, is that if we look, if we look at the period where Rock Against Racism was founded in 1976 and we compare it to the period now, what has happened? If you looked at the highest earning bracket of people in, at, 19, at the period of 1976 and you looked at the average wage that people were receiving, the difference between them, according to Danny Dorling, professor from Oxford University in his book The Equality Effect, was times seven. Okay, today, what is that disparity? Today the disparity is around 21 times. So the highest earning people are earning 20 times, 21 times what the average earning um, people in the society are. So how then is that reflected? How then are these people that are at the sort of creme de la creme of the music industry expected to have a relationship with the people underneath them? The isolation um, becomes far larger. The alienation becomes far larger. So we need art that reflects these kind of sharper social contradictions, um, I would say. What was the question again, just so I can speak directly to it then? It was, it was about um, spaces being shut, like venues, music venues. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example is actually a youth centre um, in the area that I live in, Lancaster Youth Centre, which provided um, training for young people to get um, courses in music engineering and get AQAs actually completely for free. I know many, many, many of the producers that I work with to this day were trained in uh, that youth center. Now what happened there, it was also the first place I performed at the age of 17. That place has actually incrementally and attritionally been worn down until it no longer exists. So firstly, it was uh, administered by a company called Epic, and of course this is something we've seen all over the country. It's nothing new to anybody in here. This is something we know of. Yeah, and, and so from the situation where it goes from being directly administered by the council to being outsourced to a private company to then that private company getting its funds that it was getting indirectly from the government taken away. Taken away. We've seen that, and the repercussions are actually violent in terms of people's um, aspirations in general, and also people's um, ability to really build their music careers. Um, I was going to mention the most recently in Hackney, um, Hackney Council actually imposed a curfew on venues in the area that in the weekday they have to close at 11 pm, on the weekends, close at midnight. Now, who goes to the club? to finish at midnight, you know, normally it's getting warmed up, you get to a couple of midnight, and um, one of my things is, it's quite disappointing given the fact we got like a, um, you know, a night, a night, was it a nightmare? They were increasing like the nightlife um, in, in the capital, and I think um, the power of the night economy shouldn't be underestimated. I mean, a lot of people go to Berlin, such as myself, to Amsterdam for the nightclubs to go raving. Right, you know, car culture is one of those things that brings people from such a diverse background, you know, for the LGBT plus community, 
economic minorities and all these things. Like just a vast range of people, and it's unfortunate to know that you know these spaces do need to be safe because these are spaces where people, you know, you bring strangers together, you make those friendships, and over music on the dance floor and. Yeah, we just need to make sure that we are like getting more, if they're closing places, bases are being opened. I think one other thing that, that shouldn't be, I think one other thing that shouldn't be uh, over, overlooked um, in all of this discussion actually is the role that political campaigns can play, political organisation and political campaigns. I mean, if we're serious about saving a much loved community space, let's build a campaign to do that. Let's not forget that it was political organisation political campaigns, including the trade unions, that made Rock Against Racism possible. And, uh, and, and actually, if you look at some of the high points of music and politics converging throughout history, you see precisely this. I mean, Free Nelson Mandela, the song written by Jerry Dammers, only led to a mass campaign in this country, Artists Against Apartheid, and eventually that huge gig in Wembley Stadium. That only happened because the ANC got in touch with him and said, we like your song, can we get you involved in a bigger, broader campaign, which links up with other activists, with different political parties, and with the trade unions. So I think that needs to be... Yeah, that's true. I mean, like even um, for our, our, our float at Carnival this year, was sponsored by the National Education Union, and then last year it was sponsored by RMT. So yeah, the, the, the role unions play, or you know that United Front plays in like, bringing these campaigns together is extremely important. Yeah, United Front, so broad campaigns that involve different different organisations, different political organisations, and, and, and so on. Um, now, you've been very patient and, and very dedicated with your raised hand. It better be a good question. No pressure. Yeah, yeah, it's just one's coming to you. Oh, and by the way, let me just um, let me just jump in before you give us uh, the question. Uh, it, it's okay if if you want to, you know, ask a question or indeed make a contribution. You know, I'm sure there's lots of experts in the audience as well as on the platform. So I, I've got nothing against contributions, but let's keep them short so that we can get a few in and a few responses back. Let's try and keep them down to a couple of minutes, please. Okay. One two one two. You can hear me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks. My name's Steve Tiller. And um, I'd just like to say thank you for the amazing people on the platform, everybody. Uh, the thing you said was, you know, really... Yeah, okay. I mean, really inspiring. Um, the person I'm meeting, uh, in, you know, <laughs> uh, in uh, 20 minutes is, um, is an actor who's going to be performing Jackie Walker's show, The Lynching. Um, which uh, I hope all of you know, Jack, Jackie Walker was the vice uh, chair of Momentum. She was accused of anti-Semitism. I'm Jewish, I'm the director of the show. Uh, she's not an anti-Semite at all. Um, but, so, this is a way of a plug. The show's on tonight, but it's not really about that. It's also about the fact that she was, she was completely made voiceless by Momentum. So while it's great that Momentum has um, uh, put this event on today. They completely censored Jackie Walker. Uh, she would love to have been here in the in the um, the world transformed, and uh, she isn't. So you know, one wonder is you. A lot of people were talking about um, censoring, gatekeeping. 
And sadly, Momentum has done that to Jackie Walker, a black Jewish woman who has stuck her neck out. She's no racist. She's um, uh, an anti-racist. She, she, she worked in prisons. She worked as uh, a teacher. She worked as a, an, uh, an anti-racist trainer. And she's been completely blackened. And probably some people here will know her show. Um, you know, the sort of stuff that she gets on social media is the kind of stuff that Diane Abbott gets. Um, just, she's just, not actually, and the reason why she's not doing the show, partly the reason why she's got some other things to do, and why we have an actor doing it, and we, we're going to have, that's going to be a big rollout on the show, is because of security. Because she's, because at the JDL meeting last night, we had like, you know, nasty people out the front. So just to be clear, the show isn't taking place today. It's taking place today, but outside the world. Give, give us the details quickly. Blackburn House, up the roads, by the, uh, the suitcases, if you know Liverpool, on Hope Street. Blackburn House, 7.30, Jackie Walker's show. And, you know, it was censored, basically. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sean at the back is next. If we could get a roving mic over to Sean at the back. Yes, it's stand up perhaps. Um, just keep your hands up uh, if you, yeah, okay. Yeah, cheers Dave. Um, yeah, I'm Sean, I'm from Real News Video Activist Collective and two of us are over in the States for three months this year, like filming with social movements, the growing social movements that America is standing up to Trump and everything it stands for. And one, for, well, one of many things that struck us as we were going around the States was the amount of community organisers who were artists of some sort, like musicians, hip-hop artists, poets, graffiti artists. And it was very noticeable, particularly, but not exclusively, in communities of colour. And in a number of these places, they also had what they called cultural organisers. And I was talking to a number of them, going, well, so what is a cultural organiser? Because we don't really have this in Britain, as far as I know. And they said, well, basically, it's, it's, it, it forms a number of things. They said, for a start, particularly in Afro-American communities, storytelling has been really important, not only to deal with the stuff we've had to deal with, but to start organising around those stories so we know what we're doing. So it's a way of teaching people how to express themselves and also to tell those stories. It's a way of giving people confidence out of being able to express themselves. But they said also, through that creative process, which is basically another way of looking at the world and another way of thinking, how to practically use those skills you're learning and apply them to the problems in your community. And in a way, I think Loki is probably doing a version of that, but I just wonder what the panel thought about, should we be specifically thinking about cultural organisers and getting a lot more musicians and artists actually as political organisers in this country? Brilliant. I'll take a couple more questions first, but thanks for that, Sean. Uh, can we go to person with the scarf here if you want to put your hand up and then we go and then we'll go next to the person with the orange t-shirt hi i've just returned um, from egypt um, in the last couple of weeks to hackney and i can't believe gentrification that's happening there it's out of control um, right now students are being expected to pay 800 to 900 pounds a month for a room in a shared house um, and i just wondered at what point can musicians really start to mobilise the people because actually it's the demand there and when are, when are we going to wake up to this? Sorry, where were you referring to? I missed the beginning. Hackney in London. 
next year. Yeah. Oh, hi there. Thank you so much for that. Um, I wanted to ask about getting access to platforms. So in London at the moment, there's a really great poetry, spoken word, and music scene. Um, it's got a lot of like, working class people, queer people of colour, queer people, people of colour. Really great scene of artists making like politically relevant work. Because I'm somewhere between poetry and music. But there's no big platforms. It's mostly just platforms we make for ourselves, nice we produce ourselves. And none of these like voices, especially of basically like black poets, queer poets of colour, and artists, like, it's a very blurred line of music. Aren't getting access to any big platforms, occasionally one person breaks through. And I want to hear opinions on like creating our own platforms and getting them like a bigger audience, but also ways we can access those bigger platforms. Is there's no monitors on this stage, so it's actually quite hard for us, the panelists, to hear your questions. So, um, okay. Um, I'll, I'll, if, if any of the panelists want to jump in, let me know. Otherwise, I'll take a couple more questions. Do you want to jump in, Lois? I mean, obviously, um, one of the uh, platforms that you, uh, not obviously, not everyone knows. So there's a platform called Galen got, that got set up online a couple of years ago, which is like a massive platform for women of colour. Um, I think, really, it's about being really DIY, I mean, taking it back to grassroots movements and getting people involved. I mean, they started off as a group, um, or there's like a they're massive collective, again, like 20 plus now. And then they started getting people from all over the globe to send in their lessons sending their articles and like opinion pieces so um, in regards to creating your own platform I think you just I mean to rally a group of people together that really have a cause and have a purpose and want to make a change and I think you use that as a tool to utilize and then I think naturally if you're whatever you're doing is genuine and from the heart generally people will get involved in that I mean Gal them started was extremely small now they're like a global body they took over the Guardian you know so I think that's what you need to do, that's, that's my, bit, my piece on that. Let me quickly respond to Sean, just so that we don't run out of time and that, gets, uh, that, that question gets ignored. I mean, my feeling is that sort of, when it's big political organisations and there's a top-down attempt to organise culture, that often isn't very successful. I think, um, I think it's much better uh, when we have conversations like this and make networks, you know, maybe not all of the panellists yet, you can from Movimentos and not, you know, and we just start to make time to talk about and think about the role that culture can play in political struggles more seriously and hopefully in an organic kind of grassroots way, exciting new things will emerge from that. So I'm really pleased we're having this discussion exactly for that reason. Okay, I'm not going to take any more uh, hands just until we've got through this list I've already got. Um, it was Chris next. Where are you? Roving my down here, please. Chris, oh, there you go. Thanks. Cheers, Loki. Ty, yeah, I just, um, thanks a lot for brilliant contributions. Um, I just wanted to see if you had an opinion on uh, a little bit of a controversy that's um, emerged around um, the kind of anti-racist, anti-fascist movement, where Ash Sarkar and a couple of others have been arguing we can't win the culture war, or we can't win the war against racism on the basis of culture. Um, and, you know, I think this is something we need, to, we need to think about. Just give you very quickly a couple of thoughts that I've had about it. One is that, I mean, it's absolutely true that the culture industries are run by the big business and corporates and stuff. 
Having said that, music in particular is not completely under their control. It has a way of escaping their control, which it did in the 1970s, and it always does to a certain extent, and I think we need to exploit that contradiction. Secondly, lastly, it is true, I think, to say that we can't beat racism just with music or just with any kind of culture, that in the end of the day, we need to do what the anti-fascists did in the 1930s. There has to be some time when hundreds of thousands of us come out on the streets and just stop Tommy Robinson. That has to happen. But it seems to me that music and, and culture can actually, I think Ashtar's wrong, I think culture, actually, music can be a part of generating that kind of mobilisation, giving people the confidence, the enthusiasm and the politics to get out on the street and do the business. I, I totally agree. I'm a fierce optimist all the way, and um, you know, they'll never crush the spirit of someone who's just got that appetite and love of humanity and you know, kind of uses music and also allows themselves to be a vessel for just the divinity that being in a musical moment with loads of people can bring. Um, <laughs> however, there are a lot of musicians that don't have the confidence because you do have a lot of musicians that use their platform to say, highlight things, to speak out, to try and be positive, and they often are sort of vilified. So I think some people get worn down People like MIA is a great example. You know, um, it kind of feels like the conversation in the last sort of five to seven years by most journalists gets steered away from her music and from more, you know, kind of the, them sort of reframing um, a lot of the, you know, things that she's trying to, uh, to highlight in their own kind of propaganda type way. So it can wear some musicians down. <coughs> Um, but also we can sort of do little things like, you know, kind of evolving the language in which we speak about culture because that whole ownership of culture, yes, it kind of mainly dominate, dominates institutions and it dominates just, you know, individual people that feel like they have the right to undermine certain, you know, aspects of what it is that most musicians are probably trying to achieve, which is usually something amazing. That's what, that's what we're trying to do. Um, but yeah, you, what you're saying about in the, in, in, in the 70s and 80s, you know, the big rock against uh, racism um, and the anti-apartheid concerts that happened um, did really, really amazing things. But then what happened was I find, I found that <coughs> when I'm sort of researching that, I look at people like Paul Simon and, you know, and Bob Geldof and all their amazing uh, attempts um, and successes actually at bringing people together against really amazing, you know, important causes through music. Like, as a musician, I think sometimes it's, it's difficult when certain musicians can be, can make certain kind of music and it, it gets referred to as sort of like pop music, you know, whereas, you know, it, you know there, there, there are other musicians who are channeling African music and they get sort of relegated to the world music corner. So, um, yeah, music doesn't discriminate. Music is for everyone, but just, yeah, just little kind of like evolving the language in which we refer to certain musicians. I feel like even now, with the new music that I'm making, I'm channeling a lot more of my Southern African heritage, particularly Zimbabwe and Nibiru music, mixing that with guitars, 
which is, you know, like there are, there are a few amazing bands who are friends of mine, like, you know, Yaysayer or The Vaccines, who do a kind of similar thing, but they're not, it's not going to be called world music, whereas when Songhai Blues get together and play some rock and roll riffs, <laughs> it's kind of called world music. So sometimes there are just like little things that we can do, um, and we don't have to steam right into the cultural, political debate and let that overshadow our enjoyment of the music. But um, yeah, I just I just feel like there's a lot of things that we can do as as consumers and enjoyers of music to really look at music and the energy that goes into it and where it's from and who has the right you know to, 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 to sort of own it. I don't think anyone necessarily owns a genre. I don't think it's right that Ed Sheeran or Justin Bieber can do Afro beats or play African, be inspired by African music and not you know, and, and, and still be called great pop music and then let's say an African artist who's selling loads of records from Nigeria makes music that's inspired and it's, it's kind of called world music. There's lots of tiny little things that we can do to increase our enjoyment and, you know, not do this whole kind of divvying of uh, who gets to own culture. Yeah, absolutely. I often think, you know, it's, it's so important, the anti-racist and anti-fascist work that we talk about, but it's often interesting to ask the idea, how did those ideas take root in the first place? And it is this slightly more subtle, although not always very subtle, but this more subtle institutional and, and endemic racism in the media, in the way that things are presented, in the way that things are compartmentalized, and so on. So I think that's a very important point. I mean, my feeling directly back, uh, Criticism about the Ash uh, um, critique of rock against racism, as I understand it. I mean, it's not an either or, is it? I mean, you know, we and it never was. I mean, rock against racism was always linked to the anti-Nazi league, or pretty soon linked to the anti-Nazi league and to the trade unions. It always operated at the grassroots as well as the big carnivals. You know, the first rock against racism gigs were in tiny pubs in in East London, and they encouraged people in their own communities up and down the country to put on their own gigs. So um, so I, I don't think it's an either or. I think we need both. Um, well, we need all sorts of, of, of fightbacks against these things. Um, okay, there was somebody with glasses who indicated, this is, some, this is somebody who's already indicated. Yes. Yeah, thanks. If we could get the mic over as quickly as possible, please. Um, worried that we were fast running out of time and keep the contributions nice and quick. Thanks. Thank you and thank you to all of you for being here for your work. Uh, my question is about internalized oppression and racism. Um, those of us that are in marginalized groups sometimes internalize the negative messages that come our way and those become stumbling blocks for us in our art and other parts of our lives and you all seem like you have figured something out about that, about overcoming those obstacles, and I'd love to hear from any of you about your own personal struggle or how you find hope in the face of that. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, right to the back there, yeah. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, set things from a slightly different angle. Um, because one or two people have mentioned the importance of music coming from the grassroots. And one of the ways in which music making very definitely escapes neoliberal capital, uh, capitalist controls, when it comes from 
people themselves in struggle making their own music. And there is in fact a network of this very music I'm talking about which has been in existence in the UK since the 1980s. It was particularly stimulated by the anti-apartheid struggle but it took on all the other campaigning and struggles that have been going on from the nightmare of Thatcherism through the illusions of new labor to today. And it's called the Street Choirs Network. I'd be very interested to know if there are any members of Liverpool Socialist Singers, actually. There's one, one down the front. Okay, well, um, you, know, you, know exactly what I'm you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think it's very important that we recognize the contributions that are being made by choirs, street choirs, all over the country. And it will be really great if the world transformed to try to get a presence for these choirs at some point in a future weekend. I think that would be a really good thing to do. Yeah. We, are, we are nearly out of time, I'm afraid. I'm just going to ask whether any of the panel want to come back on any, anything that's been said, any of the comments, or indeed anything that you feel has been missed. We've got time to do that. I agree. I, I, I want to answer the lady in the love of the blue glasses and the maroon uh, jumper. Um, it's so important to maintain hope. Like, it's really important to have some sense of optimism, but you still have to be allowed to feel, be in your feelings about, you know, certain everyday occurrences. Um, so, yeah, for me, what I do is I just try to remember the potential of my work to you know, unite so many people and do so many amazing things. And it is a sacrifice and it does hurt when you do feel kind of like othered or you face similar kind of like microaggressions and just everyday kind of which feels like in, injustices. But um, I think that, you know, it, it will, what we're doing, it will pay off. It has paid off in the past. There's been incredible movements where people have rallied together and music has paid played an amazing role in that, so um, yeah, I'm far from far from giving up yet, but that's really sweet of you to ask, ask the mic. Just a very quick point I wanted to make about um, the gentleman who said that you can't read racism just with music. Indeed, uh, me with my piano, we're not going to stop Tommy Robinson from getting from A to B, but on the other hand, if you look even in the 1200s in West Africa, the, the warriors and the kings, they were sank to war and to battle by griots. Without them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have won anything. Slave uprisings in Cuba were always led by the sound of the drums. We are here to incite, we are here to be the fuel that creates the actual physical change. So no, music on its own isn't going to be racist or anything like that. But we are the petrol that's going to fuel the revolutions. Every revolution has a soundtrack. Uh, just if I can quickly um, respond to the um, question there, I think um, it's often quite easy to concentrate on the ways that things manifest on an individual level, but I think returning it to the collective sense, returning it to the actions of the state, if we look at the 33 to 34,000 people that over the last few decades have died trying to get into Europe thanks to Frontex, 
and we look at the names that were put up on the wall in Liverpool and that were torn down, I think that's the sharpest end of what you know, I feel your question was alluding to. So I think it's important to always connect those dots in a way, from the individual to the collective. In terms of uh, the question that was asked um, before then, no, sorry, after that, I think if we look at the example of the like of Paul Robeson, and we saw that, you know, as one of the most famous people in the world, seen in over 20 languages, films that were massive hits, when he came to Wales, who was it that he stood with? He went and sang with the Welsh miners and made a film about their, their struggle. And the point is, is that it's that type of solidarity that we need to encourage from musicians, I would say.
But, uh, but more importantly, at a, at a bargain, a great the world trans, thank you though, at the um, a bargain price, especially for this festival. But what they really want you to do is go and sign up for the Left Book Club over there on the laptop. You can do that straight away. So it just remains for me to thank once again Eleni Correa, Shingi Shaniwa, Lovis Brown, Loki, and all of you. Thank you.